it's so hot in the bathroom. It also, is. I learned I can't be um, a sex weirdo because uh, just waiting around in bathrooms for something to happen, it's not for me. It's so boring. <laughs> Only reason. Only reason I'm not going to be a sex weirdo when I grow up. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode eight of Rabbit Holes Podcast. I have that right, right? I think so. It's eight. Yes. <laughs> yes, the have, last one was seven. Yes. We just have so many under our belts, it's really hard to keep track of now. I know. <laughs> it's just that we're both kind of scattered. Oh, I thought you were going to say we're both kind of awesome. And Oh, yeah, we're awesome, <laughs> but we're also kind of scattered. We're a mess. We're a collective yeah. mess. This is true. Yes. <laughs> All right, uh, so welcome back, everyone. I'm one of your hosts, Elise. And I'm the other host, Andy. And uh, we have some very interesting rabbit holes to share with you uh, this week, and we're looking forward to getting into that. But before we do, we just wanted to tell you a little bit about the website and our social media and where you can get in touch with us. You can reach out and touch us many ways at our website at rabbitholespodcast.com, email rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com, Twitter at Rabbit Holes Pod, Facebook at Rabbit Holes Podcast page, and Instagram at Rabbit Holes Podcast. I hope you guys are all enjoying the updates. Uh, Elise is handling the Twitter because, as we discussed earlier, I don't tweet, but I'm doing a lot of the Facebook and Instagram posts. If you're on Twitter and you have ever tweeted, give me podcast recommendations or any variation thereof, you have gotten a direct message from me saying, why don't you check out our podcast? It is a very inefficient way of marketing, but it's all I can do because I don't have a marketing background. <laughs> it's not like I'm doing much better, but no. I'm getting some likes. We're getting likes. You had this great idea about the blog on the website, and now we have a blog up and running. So We do, and we since our last recording, we have two blog posts mm-hmm. up, so check them out. We have a spooky... Halloween-themed... Ghost Elise story. Elise pretty sure she got stalked by a ghost... But at one point, it's very upsetting. And I have a continuation, which actually ties into last week's theme of goop and crazy wellness and this week's theme. So Whoa. I've actually bridged two weeks with my podcast, or with my blog post, because I'm just that smart. I did not plan it that way. <laughs> I'm looking forward to see what it is. Yeah. All I know about your podcast that I love so much is the Jamie from Outlander gif in it. Yeah. And I was just like, yep, that's a genius idea. Where do I find me some Scotsman? Yep. That was, I was like, I sent it to Elise to post and to edit because I'm not uh, good with grammar and spelling. Um, and I said, hey, if you could find the gift from, of Jamie from Outlander moving some hay, that would be awesome. <laughs> I knew exactly what she was talking about. Didn't even have to go looking for it. <laughs> so check it out and we hope you enjoy. Yeah. And um, the other way you can kind of interact with us is via our Patreon page. So we have that set up for you guys. Uh, head on over, check out the different tiers. Our first three tiers, uh, you'll get some extra bonus content podcasts. And then the three tiers after that, you get a bit more exciting stuff. You get to tell Andy and I what to do and who doesn't like bossing people around. You get super special content on the website. So all very exciting. So that's our Patreon. Uh, And then also take some time to head over to iTunes, Stitcher, and or Google Play, really wherever you're downloading this pod from. 
and leave us a good rating or a good review because that really helps with our visibility and gets us into the algorithms so that more people listen to the show. And if you give us a review or rating, you Ooh, can yeah. enter to win some fabulous merch. merch. I ordered it the other night, so I'm waiting for it to show up. Woohoo! And uh, I'm very excited, and I can't wait to see what it is. It's a special mystery box <gasps> of merch, so exciting. So you have until October 21st to go give us a good rating or a good review somewhere. Um, and when I say end of October 21st, I mean Pacific Standard Time, because the next morning I'm going to go looking for names. We're going to throw them in a... A bowl, and I think I'm going to have either producer Maggie or production assistant Wellington uh, pick our winners. <laughs> <laughs> By that, you mean tip over the bowl and then play with whatever piece of paper they yeah. pick? Okay. <laughs> the visual, you can take a video of that. For sure. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that. So, let's get into our stories for this week, which is what we're all here for. And we decided we're going to use the Wheel of Destiny to once again pick who's going first. <laughs> So hit the. Where's your bubba bubba's now? <laughs> <laughs> Andy. Andy's going first this week. So Andy, bring it. Let it be broke. What's your story? So um, my story is called from Cheech and Chong to Weed Mom. Yeah. <laughs> Cannabis, weed, pop, ganja, Mary Jane, whatever you like to call it, is about to be legal again here in Canada. I can't wait. Ah, uh, now. If you are listening to us in Canada, you might be sick of all hearing about all the cannabis legislation and what that means. And I've heard a lot about it over the last number of months, but I really wanted to explore the subject more. Slip on down the ganja rabbit hole, as it were. (laughs) We need some Bob Marley playing in the background. I know. We're like, pass the duchy. (laughs) As one does, I started on Wikipedia. Of course. Because where else? Uh, So cannabis is native to Central and South Asia, where it was used in fabric and rope that date back to Neolithic times Mm. uh, in places such as China and Japan. Uh, When the fun properties of (laughs) cannabis was discovered, they're not sure, but they do know that the ancient Assyrian, A-S-S-Y-R-I-A-M. Assyrians? Assyrians. Uh, used it in some religious ceremonies, and it was thought that they were introduced to uh, cannabis as a uh, hallucinogenic uh, by the Iranians, the ancient Iranians, I guess. Hmm. So we're talking about like way, way, way back in the BCs. See, and I thought marijuana had its origins on this side of the world. Nope. It's Asia. Hmm. Asia and India and the Middle East. So apparently the Iranians of that time we're introducing a bunch of cultures to cannabis. So wherever they went, yes. seems to be like everybody started to pick up and put cannabis into some of their ritual use. So cannabis has a strong history, as, as I just said, in rituals uh, by a whack of ancient cultures and hemp seeds were found in Siberia that suggests that it was used in, a, in ceremonies as far back as the fifth to second centuries BC. Hmm. So way, way back. So the wacky tobaccos had a long... So it's been around, like, for a hell of a long time. Yeah. Like, a hell of a long time. So when did everyone become so uptight about it? <laughs> Apparently it was the British. Surprise, surprise. Those Puritan Victorians, probably. But it started in the British colonies. So the first to criminalize it was the British colony of Martinus, M-A-U-R-I-T-I-U-S. Because people were worried about its effects on the indentured Indian workers. Oh, that sounds like the empire all over. Yeah. We will take care of you others 
and I'm air quoting others because you can't take care of yourselves. Yeah. So the indentured servants, which is a nice way of saying slaves, slaves, <laughs> uh, they were worried about the effects on them, probably their productivity. So they uh, criminalized it in nineteen in eighteen forty. Between that and the 1920s, a lot more of countries and colonies banned it, um, such as British Singapore was the next one, then some states in the U.S., Jamaica, which is also a British colony, South Africa, also a British colony, uh, New Zealand, the U.K., and Canada. So I, I think technically Canada was the first country to make it illegal, but a bunch of British colonies had done it mm-hmm. before us. Uh, So why in 1923 was it criminalized here in Canada? Essentially, nobody is 100% sure. (laughs) So because uh, there was a there's a massive lack of historical information on the motives and even why it came up. So I found this great article on CBC where Catherine Carstairs, a professor and chair of history department at the U of Guelph, University of Guelph, Uh, who also wrote a book called Jailed for Possession, Illegal Drug Use, Regulation and Power in Canada, 1920-1961. So this woman is an authority. Yeah. So she and most others feel that it was simply because the drug was getting a lot of play and attention on the international stage. Mostly a bunch of U.S. states had, had legislation in the works. The U.K. and New Zealand all were looking at it. Um, a bunch of, as I said, British colonies had outlawed it. Uh, so they added it to the schedule of restricted drugs. There was no discussion at all in <laughs> Parliament. And there's very few historical archives uh, about this getting added. Like, it was just so no discussion. It was just like, oh, weed. The thing was, at that time, nobody knew what weed was in Canada. Like, no, <laughs> it wasn't really common used. It was not even a used drug. Right. We, we were in the middle of an opioid crisis, but anyway, opium crisis. Okay. <laughs> opium crisis. Opium. So that was in the 20s, they banned it? That was in, in 1923. I wonder if that was part of the um, prohibition style ban all the fun things movement. So another theory, which is a favorite <laughs> of marijuana advocates, is that women's right activist Emily Murphy created the war on drugs mentality with her book The Black Candle. <laughs> so I'm sure you know who Emily Murphy is. Yeah, sounds familiar but it's not my area but yeah. She is uh, she's an interesting case for a pioneer of women's rights in Canada. She pushed for the Dower Act in Alberta which gave women legal right to one third of her husband's property. She became the first female magistrate in a, the British Empire and was one of the valiant or famous five, the group of women who launched the person's case that declared women are persons under the law. So with all heroes of that time, she also has a down, AKA dark side. (laughs) Her book, The Black Candle, was a racist, anti-immigration, anti-drug platform that focused mostly on opioids, cocaine, and with a small piece on cannabis. Race permeated the black candle and was intricately intertwined with the drug trade and addiction in Murphy's analysis, jaded by her coming into disproportionate contact with Chinese people in her courtroom. Ugh, come on. You're right there with the open-mindedness of, like, suffragette movement and, like, all this other great stuff. Why you gotta go and, like, be a dick about race? So really, at that time, there was a really anti-Asian, or or a, or they were called at that time, oriental, oriental movie, yeah. uh, movement, especially in B.C. Um, yeah. So 
She was really interested in drug trade and addiction to immigration. She went and saw opioid dens. Opium. Opium dens. (laughs) Sorry. I'm more used to opioids now. I know, yeah. Opium dens um, and stuff in Vancouver. And actually, Vancouver at that time was really caught up. BC was really caught up in this sort of uh, anti-Asian immigration thing that became an act. And I forgot to write down the act. So yet, at sometimes she is ambiguous in her treatment of of non-whites, flip-flopping from just like flaming racists with such lines as black and yellow races may yet obtain ascendry and thus threaten to wrestle the leadership of the world from the British. Sounds like Stephen Miller. To moderate by chastising whites who use the Chinese as scapegoats. So some believe that because the main purpose of her book was to gain support for stricter gun laws, she played both sides of the fence, playing up like the popular prejudices one minute and then distancing herself the next so she could still appeal to moderates. Right. So sort of Trump-esque in that right. way. Like one day flaming racist, one day not so bad. And that's what you want. You want to be able to compare yourself to Trump. That's a good <laughs> benchmark to be at. Yeah, so as a side note, also, you know, again, she she did this really great thing for women's rights, but she was also a vocal supporter of the eugenics movement. Eugenics. Eugenics movement, thank you. I even asked how to pronounce it earlier and I've totally forgotten, <laughs> which I will no, not go into too heavily because I find it horrifying. Oh, it's medical racism. It's terrible. But did you know that some of the things, so, so for those people who don't know, it was... Basically, compulsory sterilization of thousands of people, sometimes even without their knowledge, because they were seen to have mental deficiencies. And she honestly had quoted a saying that children with mental deficiencies are like the devil and other such things and that women should. But it's not even that they were like, okay, all these schizophrenics probably shouldn't have babies. It was like, oh, if you are colorblind, that... And it was just really this pro-super-breeding, the best race of white people possible. Yeah. So... It wasn't so much, a, from my understanding, just mental defects. It was physical. Yeah. I, it was yeah. like, you're colorblind. Oh, then that means that you should not have any more children because your husband's line is tainted. Yeah. Ontario. I didn't know about this until I was watching a Frankie Drake Mysteries on CBC <laughs> last year, and they touched on it, and then I looked it up, and I was horrified. Oh, it had ascendancy in the medical community for quite some time, and um, right up through to the 50s and 60s in Ontario. Like, oh, my the- dad has horror stories about the asylums in Toronto where they, like, the tail end of the eugenics movement was still sterilizing people at that point. The Sterilization Act of Alberta was, wasn't was repealed until 1972. Um, and shit. she was a huge factor for getting that in. So thousands of Albertan men's and, men and women were sterilized without their knowledge or consent under this act. You did one good for women, but you did a bunch of shit. Oh. Like, so now we have to throw this on the, like, the scales. Yeah. And maybe not lionize Murphy as much as we tend to and have in the past. Yeah. I was starting to read. I was like, oh, she sounds like a cool lady. No. Mm-mm. Like the flaming racism is bad. You know, it's somewhat understandable for the time. But it's uh, the whole like, hey, you're colorblind. No more babies for you. We're going to. Or you have a lump in quadrant 416 of your skull. And the phrenologist tells us that you are subject to 
possibly being a criminal psychopath. So you were up first on the eugenics list. Yeah, like crazy. So the anti-pot laws may have been on the books since the 1920s, but but it wasn't until the 1930s that Canada came under pressure from our neighbors to the south to crack down on... uh, Surprise, surprise. Cannabis. Uh, even then, uh, like, it wasn't overly enforced. Hemp was really common on Canadian farms in the 30s, mm. where it grew just wild, and uh, farmers used it as a wind block for crops to protect crops, as well as just to protect from soil erosion. Right. That because it was a wild and it was a pretty hardy plant, like, they would just not necessarily rip it out if they didn't need to. They also, at that time, you used plants to control pest situations by breaking up, uh, not planting all crops of the same kind, etc. So they just kept it around. And the RCMP were under pressure, again, from our neighbors to the south to crack down on that evil plant. So they went around to people's homes and told them to take down their hemp. One story that when I was reading in an elevator full of people who I'm pretty sure now think I'm crazy, uh, because I couldn't stop laughing, was the RCMP told this elderly lady to cut down her hemp and she refused she is quoted because this hemp makes my birds sing so sweetly i'm not going to cut it down i insist that my birds have their pleasures (laughs) so the rcmp decided they weren't going to mess with her and allowed her to keep her hemp like at a certain point you just gotta let the old people have it (laughs) so i just was giggling i was just picturing be like, Mm-mm, I'm not cutting down my weed. <laughs> my birds like it. <laughs> They're going to stay. Oh, I thought it was a euphemism for I enjoy smoking this. No, no. Okay. It was l- probably literally because in the 30s, they didn't really see it. Again, it wasn't a common True. Um, recreational drug. It was just this wild plant that grew and that they knew they used to make it into like fabrics. Well, can we differentiate between hemp and the marijuana plants? Like, which were they growing? Because it uh, has none of the fun properties of it, from what I understand. So was I think they might have been using it interchangeably at the time. Okay. The Professor Carstairs, um, she doesn't really believe too strongly that Emily Murphy's black candle had too much to do with the federal laws. Because at that time, a lot of the people in um, the government and the government bodies really didn't consider her work to be substantiated. Because she was her her book is very, like... Um, dramatic and mm-hmm. like if you've ever seen any clips of the 1930s movie called Reefer Madness where like a few <laughs> tokes makes them go insane and yeah. start killing people and killing themselves that's sort of the vein of her book very dramatic you can now watch Reefer Madness on Amazon Prime Canada can you? yeah it's up there <laughs> I now want to watch that maybe I'll be doing that when I get home that is why or potentially why it became illegal here in Canada and now we are Going to go and make it legal. I'm going to be so relaxed. So this comes out on the 14th. So by that Wednesday, everybody will be able to to uh, smoke some pot. I'm going to sleep so well that weekend. So first of all, this is a typical of Canada's federal system. Not all provinces and territories are following the same path to legalization. Some are imposing different regulations on the drugs within their jurisdiction. Two provinces, Quebec and Manitoba, are banning home cultivation altogether. Because Quebec has got to be like that. Buzzkills. Also, Canadians who cross the border frequently into the U.S. should prepare for American Customs and Border Patrol's officer, officers asking pointed questions about their drug histories. 
U.S. immigration lawyers are already warning Can Canadians that they could be denied entry to the U.S. or banned from the U.S. for life if they admit to smoking cannabis to a border agent. I currently have this no U.S. policy in my life until at least 2020, and then hopefully I can travel to the States again. But, like, honestly, it's not that big of a loss. <laughs> well, think of how many times you go through the States to go to the places sometimes. True. So this, uh, Len Sanders, so this is a CBC article as well, and I'll post all of this to show notes. Uh, when Trump talks about building a wall to the southern borders, I see a wall on the northern border for Canadians because of marijuana. I think you're being a little overdramatic, buddy, because yeah. I think they have bigger fish to fry than some potheads. Well, I don't know. Like, you remember that old show, Border Patrol? That is true. I like, you st whoa, we still love it was like a joint rabbit hole we would fall down uh, when we were home and watching it at uh, different homes. But like, I think of all the times out on the Vancouver side, so in Oregon where it's yeah. legal, and they were coming up and they were giving those people shit for having it on them and all that. So like, if you're going to go into the States, just go by the West Coast, because like, they clearly already have that yeah. set up. And I'm not advocating being dishonest to any sort of authority figure, but if you say no, I'm not a cannabis smoker and you just don't happen to have anything on you at the time. And you don't smell like it. And you don't smell like You'll be fine. Yeah. Although there was this one time I was answering questions online for um, a health insurance. And so they were asking me all these questions about like drug use. And I was just rattling off answers. And she gets to the point like, do you use marijuana? No. Have you ever used marijuana? No. Wait. Yes, I have. It was prom night. So it was like 10 years ago. But yeah, I tried it. And then there was like this... <laughs> There was this really long beat, and I'm just like, I don't know why I told you that. <laughs> has, police cracking under pressure at police at, interrogation. At, like, no pressure. <laughs> I ratted myself out. And the woman on the other end was just like, how long ago was it? I was like, 10 years? She's like, oh, that's outside the window. You're fine. And was just laughing at me. And I'm like, I don't blame you. I am a dummy. <laughs> so don't be like Elise. Just lie. <laughs> but don't lie. We're not telling you to lie to the authorities. Funny thing is, so we, as I said, watched uh, Border Patrol all the time. And one time, Elise was coming back through customs. And this was when there was all this high, uh, sort of hysteria about, like, Border Patrols looking at your phone and not letting you in back into the country if you didn't yeah. unlock it and let them look at her. So Elise was texting me as she was waiting for customs. And I sent her back a message. Don't forget from all of our watching Border Patrol, it's really common to find cocaine traces on luggage. She's like, fuck you, asshole. Thanks, Andy. I got her back, though, because last time she was coming through customs, I reminded her to bring me the heroin she was smuggling in her lower intestine. <laughs> That's true. She did. <laughs> like a jerk. <laughs> if you're not going to try to get your friend arrested, are you really friends? We're really not. <laughs> so once marijuana is legal, do you know what she can do? I can buy it in person and online. I can grow it, I can smoke it, and I can eat it. Yes. So you can purchase fresh or dried cannabis, cannabis oil, plants, and seeds for cultivation from either a provincially or territorially regulated retailer, or where that option is when that option is not available directly from a federally licensed producer. You can possess up to 30 grams of dried legal cannabis or its equivalent in public. Share up to 30 grams or its equivalent of legal cannabis and legal cannabis products with another adult. Cultivate up to four plants at home, four plants per total per, per household. 
And that's a lot of pot. Pot plants go really big. I was thinking of doing that, and then I look around at all the plants I've ever killed, and I'm just like, I no, would kill they, that. So they literally fast. just grow like a weed. Want to bet? <laughs> I could kill it in the wild. Prepare various cannabis products, such as edibles, at home for personal use, provided that no dangerous or uh, solvents are used in the process. I think that's going to be my ticket. I'm not a smoker, but I am an eater, clearly. <laughs> There's a lot of companies out there now clamoring. There is Tweed. There is Canopy Growth. There mm-hmm. is Molson is trying to get into the market with a canna- with a cannabis weed beer. Weed beer. One of the big markets that these companies are going to be targeting is me, moms. <laughs> so uh, they want the weed mom as opposed to the wine mom. Ah. So that's when you see these companies like Tweed and Canopy Grow. They don't refer to it as marijuana. They call it cannabis. Oh, because it sounds classier. Because it sounds classier. It also gets more away from the ganja and Mary Jane and Cheech and Chong. Although right. Tweed does have a line that they do with Snoop Dogg. Well, that's just market research. Smart. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Who knows more about pot than Snoop Dogg? Uh, they're really trying to get the moms to, you know, switch from wine to weed. As I said in my blog post, like, cannabis is really starting to be marketed as, like, the all-purpose cleaner of drugs. Like, it is going to fix your anxiety, deal with your headaches, uh, help with your pain. Um, if you have something, it's weed is the miracle drug. Panacea. yeah. Yeah, it's, oh yes, it's supposed to also help with obesity. Did you know that? No. I don't know how, because it makes you hungry. Like, Jesus. (laughs) I'm not saying that I smoke weed and then make a two dozen (laughs) Pillsbury chocolate chip cookies and eat most of them, but. (laughs) So you hear. (laughs) So I hear. So they're really targeting um, women, professional women, including mothers, and what they're doing is, is, Again, they're branding it as a wellness, self-care and wellness. Mm-hmm. Even Goop apparently has oh bongs on her website <laughs> and like vape pens for, because in California it's legal. Yes. I'm going to assume she's charging way too much and they're really ugly and pretentious looking. Oh, sh- I'm sure they fucking are. <laughs> that is what that woman does. So new the brands will sell strains that boost relief from stress, aches, and anxiety. Others promise to infuse our lives with deeper sleep and better sex. It does do that one. <laughs> uh, not to mention make us more productive workers. No. I don't know how it does that. <laughs> and more present when we're with our kids. Again, not so sure about that. Well, part. I know. It may make us not care that they're screaming in our faces. <laughs> So if these companies had their way, they would just totally get rid of the old stoner stereotype, the Cheech and Chong's, the Bob Marley's of, the it, Bob all. Marley's of it all. What they would love for you to do is where women treat insomnia, not with a sleeping pill, with a joint, you ease your cramps with a CDC capsule instead of Advil and unwind with a puff on a vape pen rather than your glass of wine. I mean, all of those sound okay to me. <laughs> You know, they're selling cannabis, cookies made with organic ingredients, rose gold vaporizers that have been featured on Goop. So I'm sure that they Mm -hmm. look hella pretentious. 
Um, there are panel discussions at Trendy Boutiques on cannabis and health, self health, self care, um, and you know these these influencers and lifestyle experts that give these talks. They have like sliced fruit and vegetables entrees next. They're samples of weed. So long gone are the days of you know eating the two dozen Pillsbury cookies. <laughs> So really what I'm hearing is that there's a new market being opened up, not just with the sale of the weed itself, but all of the accompanying products that go with it and the lifestyle that goes with it as well. Yeah. So they're really trying to like take that lifestyle away from the Cheech and Chongs and the Jay and Silent Bobs and those sort of really synonymous stoner images that we see and Mm -hmm. sort of turn it back into like... You can smoke pot and still be productive. You can smoke pot and it's self-care as opposed to like something you should be ashamed of Mm -hmm. and something that's bad. So it's sort of like alcohol. Whereas we know it's not that great for us, but we do it anyway. Yeah. Because it makes us relax. So So what we're going to be seeing very shortly is the Facebook memes about like moms and womanhood, like with that flowy script on top of like an out of focus picture. But instead of talking about like, Carol, get me my glass of wine at the end of the day. It's going to be Carol, get me my joint at the end of the day. Yes. Got it. Oh, my weed cookies or something. (laughs) It's interesting. It's an interesting sort of time because a lot of these companies have really high stock values, but they don't produce anything yet. My, I was talking to my financial planner at the start of the year and we were talking about what he was going to do with my money, my itty bitty little nest egg. And he was saying, like, I could put it all into these pot ventures for you. But I'm telling you, it's like the Dutch tulip fields of the 1600s. Like, there's nothing there. They're not selling anything. Yeah, it's like the dot-com, like the pets.com and all of those dot-com companies of the 2000s that made millions of dollars without selling anything. Now, if you take something like Tweed, which is the one that's in Smith Falls, they are expanding. They mm-hmm. are growing. They are going all over the world to look but at... But still, their stock is overvalued. Yeah, because they haven't done like much yet. Yeah, there's no, no tangible product there. Not yet, not until October. And then it's to see if they can even keep up with what they think will be the need. Right. And That's they, why they're... And they don't know what that potential need will be. Yeah. They don't know if they're going to overproduce or underproduce. Yeah. Like, my financial planner was just like, stay out of the weed market until it stabilizes. My financial planner's advice was don't buy weed, buy Microsoft. It's not a sexy stock, but it's year over year increasing its value. And so it's, there's no sure thing in the stock market, but it's as close to a sure thing as you're going to get. Oh, yeah. And it's still affordable to get in on. Yeah. So I was like, yes, please. (laughs) I'll take my million dollar payout now. Or how are we doing this? (laughs) Let's keep buying Windows products, people. So that's my story. So to recap, um, we're getting legal weed. We used to have legal weed. Mm -hmm. The British ruined it for everybody. That's my from Cheech and Chong to Weed Mom. So there you go. So in short, we are going to get weed soon here in Canada. And really, we have the British to thank for making it illegal in the late 1800s, early 1900s. Sounds about right. Thanks. (laughs) Britain. Well, I mean, the time period it was the Victorians where they were crawling back on all. Oh, that's true. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks.
They were just not letting anybody have fun. No, like tablecloths were invented because it was feeling that the table legs would turn men on. Oh, my God. (laughs) So the Victorians invented tablecloths to keep uh, chubbies out of the dining room. Because <laughs> they were so worried about the, the the mores of the time, so this doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> if you, as a man, look at a table leg and say that's a sexy leg right there, well, like they had nothing. Like all the women were all like, that is true. Up. They like, were like, an ankle was very risque. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Good lord, Victoria. <laughs> For all her love of Albert, she wasn't in love of anything fun, was oh, she? have you ever heard or seen their love letters? No. They are some of the raunchiest. Like, I was sitting in a British history class, and there's a documentary that my prof was playing, uh, narrated by Simon Shama, who's, like, overdone D-bag. But he's reading Victoria's love letters to Albert. And in class, I am, like, flaming red. Like, we were all blushing. We're like, oh, my God, this is so inappropriate to show. Like... <laughs> You have to be, like, plus 18 to get into this class tonight. Like, woo! Woo! So she was a bit of a a randy dog from everything the historians have pieced together. So where this disconnect happened between her as a human, individual woman, and a culture phenomenon, I don't know. We don't know. (laughs) That is hilarious. Yeah. All right, so my story tonight is in the same vein, and that is it was about an herb itself. Um, It's fall now, and things are getting chilly and gray and rainy, and the only thing I ever want to do in this weather is curl up with a cozy blanket and a book and a big old mug of tea and just spend hours in that kind of environment. So my rabbit hole today is a deep dive on my favorite beverage, tea. 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 My love of tea comes out of my university years um, because I specialized in British history, more specifically in the British Empire. And my master's thesis looked at how the British national identity was created based off of the products that they were creating their empire. So we think of drinking tea as being so synonymous with the British and it being so ubiquitous. But in fact, it's not grown anywhere in Britain. It's grown in their empire. And so we are making their empire's product, the go-to identifier for Britons. So that's what I looked at for my uh, master's thesis. And you can't spend months reading about tea without craving it nonstop. So that's when I really started drinking tea to an unhealthy degree. (laughs) So my master's work was inspired by a BBC News report, actually, that I saw around the 2013-ish mark. Um, A bunch of cabinet papers from the Second World War had just been released, like they passed the 50-year kind of embargo. Um, And it turns out that the British cabinet spent multiple days during the Second World War talking about how they were going to secure Britain's tea supply if someone were to drop an atomic bomb on the tea fields. Like, multiple days. Like, far too long they spent talking about this. But it was so important to them as a culture that they absolutely had to know where it was going to come from. So... Yet they let people starve in India. Yeah. Let's look at the history of tea. Uh, This information all comes from the Tea and Herbal Association of Canada and the UK Tea and Infusions uh, Association's website. Uh, So legend has it that the first cup of tea was experienced by Chinese Emperor Shen Nung in 2737 BC when a tea leaf accidentally fell into a bowl of hot water he was drinking. Why he was just drinking hot water? I don't know, but a leaf fell off a tree and tingled into his. The water probably wasn't safe, so they used to drink. 
that was the thing. You had to boil it. Yeah, you had to boil it. So. So tea became popular in England when Catherine of Braganza, who was a Portuguese princess, married King Charles II in 1662. With her, she brought her taste of tea, which was a common uh, commodity in the Portuguese court, but had been unknown in Britain really at that time. Uh, Not only did she bring her love of tea with her, but also part of her dowry was the Bombay region in India. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, good Lord. So she just rolled up with a giant chunk of India and was just like, here you go. Thanks for marrying me, Chuck. Like, here you go. This is for you. Uh, So Bombay is actually Mumbai now, but it's still a major city. Uh, So the combination of the fad that she started by liking and drinking tea and being the new queen, coupled with the fact that she brought the ability to supply the product, is really what made it take off in Britain in the 1700s. So the East India Company was the main supplier of tea to the British Isles for uh, quite a few centuries. The East India Company itself was given its charter by Queen Elizabeth in 1601, I want to say, shortly before she died. But it started importing out of Bombay, um, the tea out of Bombay in 1664, when they leased the entire region from the crown for the princely sum of 10 pounds a year in gold. Wow. (laughs) Here's some glass beads. Yeah. So the East India Company and the British Crown have this really weird, symbiotic, ugly relationship where they kind of favor one another. It's just a branch of the state. So Yeah. They've also done some terrible things. That too. Uh, So tea first arrived in North America in the early 1700s, specifically in 1716. Uh, The Hudson Bay Company imported the first batch into Canada. And out of respect for our British listeners, we won't talk about what our neighbors to the south did with tea. I also Um, think that offends Elise on a personal... It does, uh, very much so. Um, But I will say that tea was so important to the central life and economy down in the American colonies that it became one of the major contributors to the American Revolution. And I call it the American Revolution, even though I got into an argument with my thesis supervisor that it should be the War of Independence. But that's what the Americans call it. It was, in fact, a revolution, so I'm going to call it that. <laughs> a little bit bitter. They just, they destroyed so much of it. It wasn't right. A bunch of aristocratic white men didn't want to pay their taxes! <laughs> <laughs> By the 1800s, uh, tea was a ubiquitous part of everyday life for the Britons. Uh, Anna Russell, who was the 17th, sorry, the 7th Duchess of Bedford, turned it into a ritual by inviting guests to an afternoon tea where they would drink the stuff nibble on snacks and generally just pass the time between breakfast and dinner because they're eating so late because of the mm-hmm. social requirements. Uh, oh, that's true. They would need something around two, three o'clock in the afternoon to sustain them through till dinner being served at eight or nine o'clock at night. Ugh. But what is tea itself? Um, from teaclass.com, if you want to learn a shit ton about tea, go to teaclass.com because they have free courses online where you can learn a whole bunch of stuff that you never thought you needed to know, but it's all there. Proper tea, as different from a herbal or infusion, all comes from a single plant, and that's the Camellia sinensis uh, plant. But I'm just going to call it the tea plant because I don't like pronouncing the Latinized. The tea plant is a subtropical evergreen plant native to Asia, but it's now grown worldwide. And it grows best in loose, deep soil at high altitudes. And if you happen to have a very steep slope to grow it on, it's even better because of the drainage. Production ranges from large industrial scale farms with um, harvesting being done by large uh, equipment to small hand hand harvested farms. And it's important to know that you get what you pay for. 
So the time it takes to hand harvest keeps the leaf together better than it does with the industrial. So that's why you pay more for a higher quality tea. You're saying this Tetley is not high quality? I'm pretty sure Tetley is just like the sweepings off of a tea warehouse floor that they then put into cardboard bags. I like, tell my sister she drinks a crap load of it. Oh, I'll drink it. I just won't like it as much as I will like high class expensive tea. Uh, it takes about 2,000 leaves off of a tea plant to make just one pound of finished tea. So it's quite a, like Holy. a pound of tea is a lot in terms of you're talking like volume, but 2,000 leaves. There are different styles, uh, black, white, green, oolong, and pu'er, uh, but they all come from the same plant, and it's the processing that makes them different. Tea processing follows five general steps. You have plucking, uh, which is the harvesting stage, withering or wilting, rolling, which shapes the leaves and wrings out moisture, oxidizing, which is aging and gives um, the level of flavor, and then the firing or drying stage, which also adds to flavor. So like I said, the part of the process that affects the outcome is the uh, oxidization stage. The process can be sped up by rolling or cutting or crushing the leaves or allowing it to um, just naturally decompose in the leaf. And whatever you choose to do, however you choose to do it, is where we get variations within the different varieties of tea. White tea is basically unprocessed. It gets its name off the white downy fuzz that appears on the unopened or recently opened buds growing on the bush. The leaves aren't shaped at all and oxidization happens naturally but only for a very short period of time to get a very delicate light flavor off of a white tea. Green tea is plucked, withered, and rolled but it's not allowed to oxidize uh, and it's dried via heat almost immediately and this stops the enzymes in the leaf from starting the decomposition process. So if you think of baking an apple pie, the apples still come out creamy and white because you've stopped the enzymes with heat, where if you had left it sit on the counter, they would have turned brown from the enzymes. Oolong tea goes through all five steps. Um, rolling and oxidizing happens multiple times, and it is a time-consuming tea to create. It's a very broad category because the oxidization rate can be anywhere from 8 to 80%. So it's got a really big window there. And it's basically the halfway point between green and black teas. Multiple and repeated processing stages brings a depth of flavor to the oolongs. And if you're new to tea drinking, it's a good place to start uh, because the process tends to leave the finished tea with a rich floral fruity quality uh, that can be missing in other teas. So stronger teas have a bitter astringent taste and that's missing out of an oolong. So good place to start. For black teas, this is probably the most common type that we see in grocery stores, specifically in orange pico and earl grey or an English breakfast. Those are the really big popular ones. And they're all black teas. It goes through all five stages of production, but is allowed to oxidize more. Stages aren't repeated when preparing black tea like they are with the oolong, but the leaf is, is what you get. It has a very strong flavor profile and is often astringent or bitter tasting. And that's a big turnoff to a lot of people. And that's why black, <laughs> like Andy, uh, that's why black tea is the one that you will put milk into, milk and sugar. And it cuts that, it's supposed to cut that astringency. Or you're a freak like me and you let it sit for five to 10 minutes. Uh, Pu'er is the last um, kind of big category of tea. And it's the odd man out because it's processed like green tea. But before the final stage of drying, it's either aged as a loose tea or it's pressed into blocks. So it's basically fermented. The aging stage comes after that. Hmm. Processing can last for a few months or several years. 
So it's like a fine aged whiskey, like the three year whiskey you're going to pay nothing for the 25 year whiskey you're yes. getting over your first child. Basically. <laughs> Same thing with rum. Yeah. Pretty much. Very old and well-kept pu'ers are treated like a fine wine, and they're considered living teas. They have an earthy, woodsy aroma and a rich taste. Hmm. And so I've never really been a fan of pu'ers. I prefer blackened uh, oolongs, but um, every so often a pu'er is nice. Within a a finished and a brewed cup of tea, there are three properties. There's the essential oils that provide the aroma and the flavor. Polyphenols, which create the astringent taste, but that's also where all the health benefits come from. And then we have caffeine. So if you're, yeah, (laughs) that's the part Andy likes. Uh, If you're looking to transition off of coffee or full sugar Pepsi, like someone in the room. I, 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 yeah, we're going to talk about that later. (laughs) Um, I would strongly recommend switching over to uh, tea as kind of a way to wean yourself off the caffeine. Uh, The good thing about... um, the chemical properties of tea is that you've got the caffeine, but caffeine is water soluble. So in the first two minutes of brewing is when you're going to get the most caffeine out of it. That's the part you want to drink if you're transitioning off. What happens to the leaf afterwards is the tannins come out and the tannins is what relaxes you. So that's why tea is so often associated with being relaxed. That's true. Because the tannins will start coming out and developing after a two minute brew period. One person I read suggested brew it for two minutes, dump it, and then reuse the tea in your next cup. Certain teas like oolongs actually benefit from being rebrewed multiple times. I've never been a fan of doing that, but you can always try it. I have rinsed off tea bags wet late, late at night just to get the first like big kick of caffeine out of it. But it's the tannins that'll relax you at the end of the day. So now that we know about the components and the forms, we're ready to brew our first cup of tea. So I turn to Jamie Oliver's website because who else are you going to go to for anything food related and British? Uh, for instructions on how to make the perfect cup of tea. And Becky Sheeran has an article there called How to Make the Perfect Cup of Tea. And we're going to get all the details we need from Becky. So the first step is to know what you like. As long as you like the final outcome, that's what's important. You're the one drinking it. So don't buy into all the snobbery of it has to be done this way and brewed that way. And I break the cardinal rule of tea making because I always put my milk in first and then I'm pour boiling water over it and that's supposed to be the worst thing you can do to tea but I like it so that's how I drink it but if you want to make the absolute perfect British cup of tea that Queen Elizabeth herself will thank you for and find no fault with Becky says you need the following a loose leaf tea an empty tea bag a porcelain cup a thermometer a teapot and a tea cozy so first you fill your tea bag with loose leaf tea The rule of thumb is one teaspoon uh, per number of drinkers coming out of the pot and then an extra one for the pot. So if you and I were to sit down and make a pot of tea, I would put three teaspoons into my tea bag. But I wouldn't want to overpack the tea bag because you have to leave room for the tea leaves to expand and bloom. So in fact, I might use two tea bags. You have to know what temperature your water needs to be at. Black tea should be steeped in water that has reached 96 degrees Celsius, but green tea should have water that's only heated to 78 degrees Celsius. And white tea, I think, is even lower than that because you don't want to burn the leaf. This one rule I will yell at people, and I have yelled at people in the past, is you never reboil water. So to really bring out the flavor of tea, you need a lot of oxygen in the water, and every time you boil it, it removes some of that oxygen. So if you keep reusing boiled water, you're not going to get the proper taste in your tea. And in fact, you're going to get a metallic flavor. 
Once your water is boiled, you put it into the teapot, and then you use your thermometer to measure when it gets to the absolute perfect temperature, and then you put your tea bags into it. Okay. Brew times also change depending on the type of tea you're drinking. Producers will usually tell you uh, how long to brew their product based off their packaging, but usually count on two minutes as being your rule of thumb. And then remove your tea bag when you hit the optimal strength, because if you leave it in too long, you'll have that bitter flavor, which some people like. Yes, I think my somebody in my family drinks their tea basically with their tea bag in it, but that might be my sister. Yeah. Oh, I was gonna say East Coaster, they're drinking the King Cole, which is basically tar. Tetley. Tetley. <laughs> King Cole is good if you ever need a kick of caffeine and a strong tea. That's the way to go. When removing the tea bag, you should not stir or squeeze it, because doing so releases the tannins in the tea, which can leave a bitter flavor. Just pull it out. Maybe shake it a little bit, but then discard. Um, I had a friend who was working one summer at the British Embassy here in Ottawa, and he offered to make the office tea. And somebody very politely agreed to let him make the first teapot of the day. So he was in the kitchen, and he was pulling out the tea leaves, and he was swishing it around the pot, and he was squeezing it out to get all the last drop out of the tea when that person walked into the kitchen and saw him doing it, and just freaked the F out. She dumped the entire pot, and he was never allowed to make tea for the office ever again. And his feelings were so hurt, and I was like, Peter, they get really jumpy when the colonials fuck with their tea. Like, they've had bad experiences in the past. You just gotta give it to her. (laughs) Also, then you say, hey, I never have to worry about making tea for the office. True. Very true. Yes. Uh, What you drink your tea from will impact your experience as well. If you use plastic, the tannins will bond with the cup. Metal will give you a metallic taste to your tea. Uh, Ceramic is too porous, and it will cool down the tea pretty quickly. So porcelain is the ideal material for your teacup. That's why we have all these delightfully adorable little teacups on Etsy nowadays. They're all those old school porcelain ones. If you like a milky tea, according to Becky, now is the time that you add your milk. Uh, And it's generally only added to black teas. Don't add too much or else it will cause a scum to form on the top of the drink. And that's just a reaction between the calcium and some of the other chemical properties in the tea. Or it could be, if you do notice that scum appearing, it could mean that you have hard water. So just boil mineral water and it eliminates that scummy properties. And according to Becky, now's the time to sit back and enjoy your tea because it's been very difficult to make. I just boil water, throw it into a cup with a tea bag, but that's just me. You need one of those fancy teapots that you say white tea and then you... Oh, I have that. Oh, yeah? (laughs) I do. I don't use it because I have hard water. So it's getting scaly on the bottom. Yeah. So just put some vinegar in there. So let's say that all these steps are dawning to you and you don't want to tackle making tea at home. Well, then head on out to your local fine establishment for an afternoon or a high tea. Here in Ottawa, we have the Fairmont Chateau Laurier that does a lovely high tea, Um, but there's a lot of restaurants is becoming popular to offer a tea in these hipster joints. We'll give it to them though, because it's tea related, so it's fine. There's a website called afternoontea.co.uk uh, where I found for us a list of what we can expect when we go out for an afternoon tea. So a traditional afternoon tea menu includes a selection of freshly prepared finger sandwiches, warm scones with clotted cream and preserves, a variety of homemade cakes and pastries, and a choice of teas to choose from. For those classic finger sandwiches, you're going to be able to choose from cucumber, egg salad with watercress, 
smoked salmon with cream cheese, ham and mustard, and something called coronation chicken. You ever heard of that? I had to Google it. It seems to be a chicken salad mixed with mango chutney and a little bit of light curry powder. Yeah, the look on Andy's face was the look I had on my... I'm not a curry Mm-mm. eater at yeah. all. For my love of all things British, I can't get on board the curry train. So curry chicken salad just does not sound up my alley. There are different uh, variations for your cream uh, for your afternoon teas. You can do a cream tea, which is just scones, clotted cream, and a pot of tea. And if you're looking for the perfect experience on that, I have to say the Rishu restaurants in London are the way to go. There's a whole bunch of them all over London. And, ugh, I, like I was there almost 10 years ago and I still dream of these cream teas. They're so good. Uh, you can also do a champagne tea, which is basically just your afternoon tea, uh, but they throw a glass of champers on it for you as well. So you can get a little day drunk while you have your tea. (laughs) Classy day drunk. Classy day drunk. So you're usually in a hat with little gloves on. Uh, The types of tea that are usually served in an afternoon tea are from the black family, the black tea family. There'll be Assams, uh, which come from India and has a multi flavor. And I mean, multi is in like beer, like multi, like M-U-L, but M-A-L, multi. Uh, Darjeeling's also come from India. They're aromatic and astringent profile with a hint of almond and wildflower flavors. You have the classic Earl Grey, uh, which is flavored with oil of bergamot and is named for Charles Grey, who was the second Earl of Grey and Prime Minister from 1830 to 1834. And then you have the Lapsang Sushong, which is from China. It's smoked over pine needles and has a strong smoky flavor. And it is not a good tea. <laughs> that sounds awful. Yeah, I bought, um, when I was in London, I got a tea caddy from the twining store that had been there since the 1700s. And I made the mistake of throwing a Lapsang Sushang uh, tea bag in there. And all the tea that I got that day tastes like it because it's so strongly flavored and so smoky. I do not recommend. <laughs> High teas are basically the same thing as an afternoon tea, just stuffier. The name comes from the fact that it's taken sit at a table versus an afternoon tea which is at a low um, couch or relaxing chair so when the upper classes started doing afternoon teas they would take it at a table so it was considered high tea versus just the afternoon low tea but it's basically the exact same stuff that gets served which is just have to pretend to be classier yeah pretty much Uh, In our modern culture, we do have to be conscious, however, that commodities like tea come from inherently risky situations with producers and distributors. It comes from uh, places uh, throughout the world that don't have the best track record when it comes to human rights or standards of living. Or indentured servants. Still have them, yeah. Tea, because it's placed in the world as a must-have commodity to a large international empire for so long, has a very violent history attached to it. Wars were fought over um, ensuring the tea supply coming out of um, the East. I'm thinking of the Opium Wars, like they're called the Opium Wars, but it was this weird triangular trade system that the Opium went to. No. Anyway, triangular trade between the Opium in China, the tea in India, and then the home britain empire and there was three of them and it was not a good scene and the east india company just ran throughout all of india to secure land to secure the tea supply concerns still exist today about the ethics of the tea trade fair trade canada's website on tea farming and workers has a lot of really good information 
They talk about how large multinational corporations control markets uh, for tea and the prices are based on demand. So if the price drops, that price drop is passed along to the growers and their rates, their rates are reduced. Even when the market is favorable, growers only earn a fraction of the selling price of what can be secured on the international market. Smallholder farms often get screwed in the process when they're trying to compete with a large processing plant. So that's why they specialize and get very fine teas out of these smaller uh, workshops. But as screwed as the farmer owners can get, the actual laborers have it even worse. Uh, when harvesting is done by hand, it accounts for half of the production cost. And pluckers, as they're called, are often exposed to physically intense labor and for women, widespread sexual harassment for lower wages than the harassers. This is not a good yeah. Not a good scene. There is good news. Fairtrade Canada guarantees a 23 cents per pound premium that is paid to participating producers uh, who will organize their community, organize programs for the community and make economic investments in their community. They also look to ensure that labor standards are maintained and will make direct investments to the economies and the communities where this tea is grown. And there are many organizations like the Canadian Fairtrade that are looking to protect um, tea growers. So we hear a lot about fair trade coffee, yeah. but also fair trade tea is out there. It's just not as prevalent and as noticeable as the fair trade coffee. So if you're looking to get into tea drinking, look for those fair trade um, products. They'll be a bit more expensive, but you'll know probably an eight-year-old wasn't forced to pick your cup of tea for you. So, Is your uh, your favorite tea company, which there's still a bunch of it in the cupboard, Oh, David's Tea? Yeah. <laughs> I believe they are. Uh, I didn't look too closely because a little bit of plausible deniability never hurt anyone's tea drinking Sorry. habit. Um, but I know they do organic and they do some fair trade. The problem is it's some of their, like the teas come from so yeah. dispersed of an area that I don't know if they're all fair trade, but I, I like to hope. <laughs> Just asking. I'm sorry I did. <laughs> So what's missing from my rabbit hole? Well, that's the herbal teas and infusions. Uh, I just didn't have the time. Uh, this was uh, four pages worth of notes on just tea. Um, the world of tea is hella interesting and very deep, and there's a lot more that I can talk about. Uh, and on that note, if you would like to know more about tea and my thesis, I invite you to search for my name on Amazon or Chapters, where I'm a listed author, and you can buy my master's thesis. Ooh, you are self-published. Yeah. Well, it's a vanity press, so not self-published. <laughs> uh, you and my mother would be the only people who bought copies of my thesis. Well, at least you your mom bought one. Yeah, and then it got lost in the Canada Post strike <laughs> of like four years ago, but no, ten years ago. Um, so yeah, um, in my master's thesis, you'll learn about how the Brits decided to trade off sunlight for tea in their day-to-day -day lives. You almost made me spit... <laughs> that water out over you. It was so important to them that they decided they would rather have tea than sunlight in their homes. <laughs> Damn, the British are weird. They just know what they like and like what they love. So yeah, that is my story for the week. All right. Well, we sort of bashed the British a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> Let's face it. You people did conquer the world for spices and tea and you only drank tea because yeah. you sure shit aren't using spices. They do curries. That is true. They do do curries. They loved the India. Like That's also in my thesis. I looked at a whole bunch of cookbooks from the 18th centuries. Uh, the 18th century and looked oh. at... I know. It took me a good 
three years to get over the description of how to field dress a turtle. Oh, nasty. <sighs> um, Holy. They, one recipe I found for an Indian curry, they didn't have any Indian spices, so they just recommended throwing in, like, a handful of peppercorns. <laughs> that is, like, the whitest. I know, but it'll get the spicy. Like, if you were coming home from India and you're telling your friends and family about the spicy, spicy dish that you had while you were there that you loved, but you have nothing spicy at home to make it with, and the closest you can get is pepper... Well, then it makes sense to just load it up with pepper and call it spicy. That is true, because they wouldn't have known any different, because they probably didn't even use pepper. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, I hope you guys enjoyed our uh, rabbit holes. Actually, I think this might be our longest episode. I'm going to edit it. (laughs) Good. Uh, So, uh, if you want to reach out to us or see our show notes, which is basically just the references for our, our stories... You can see us at rabbitholespodcast.com, rabbitholes, plural, podcast.com. Our email is rabbitholespodcast at gmail.com. So if you have any other information or something that we messed up, you can email us. Oh, please don't. I don't know if I can take the criticism. Okay. Don't email us. (laughs) Email us that, that you love us and that we're awesome. Um, and I apologize for butchering everybody's name, but that's what I'm going to do for the next little bit. Uh, you can reach us at Twitter on, at face, uh, Twitter at rabbit holes pod, Facebook rabbit holes podcast page, Instagram at rabbit holes podcast. And, uh, if you would like to support us and what we're doing, we have a Patreon page set up, uh, head over to www.patreon.com forward slash rabbit holes podcast. Or you can connect via the support tab on our website. There's lots of fun stuff coming to the not-so-secret secret secret part of our website for patrons of the Velveteen tier and above. And as a little sneak peek, I am learning how to make ringtones. And I think our theme song is going to be a ringtone very shortly. Might actually encourage me to turn the volume up on my phone at this point because it's been on silent for four years now. Yeah, mine's pretty much always on silent as well. But when it's not, it's the sound of the TARDIS. TARDIS. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you like what we're doing and you want to rep us out in the world, we do have some merch available via our store on redbubble.com. Uh, just go to redbubble.com and search for Rabbit Holes Pod, or you can find a link to um, our various merch products via our website in the merch tab. And just as a reminder, we have a contest going right now. Uh, head over to iTunes, Stitcher, and or Google Play, wherever you're downloading your pod from. Leave us a good uh, review or a five-star rating, and you'll be entered into a draw to win some Rabbit Holes podcast merch. You have until the end of the day of October 21st. Thank you, Andy. It's not like I picked the date or anything. Um, At which point, we will be selecting the winner, and you will get a lovely surprise of merch from us. So, thank you all for listening, and if you don't know where you're going, any road will take you there. Have a great one. Bye, guys. Bye.